Hello there. It is time for another conversation for the Bookbound podcast. I can't wait. I hope you feel the same way. My name's Georgie Codd and I'm introducing today a chat that crosses three continents and was recorded over those three with video calls. So early, early heads up. Yes, there is a slight discrepancy in the sound quality here. Anyway, where are we going with these folks? We're in America with Daniel Mallory Ortberg, a writer and advice columnist who has lots of followers and love and for many good reasons. He is speaking with Rajula Das, who's a New Zealand-based writer. Her first book is coming out towards the end of 2020. Leading their conversation in the UK is the creative non-fiction writer Amber Massey-Blomfield. And... I don't know where to start with this one. They cover so many topics here, thinking about sexuality, gender, compassion, patience, what's in a name, and humour as well. There's a lot of humour. Some lols. We love some lols. Anyway, enough from me. As ever, I am going to pass over to our first speaker. And Amber has just asked Danny what life has been like for him during the coronavirus lockdown so far. This was recorded in April, May 2020, by the way. So there's your context. And here is Daniel. It's certainly unusual. Um, My my partner and I moved to New York uh, in January. So we're, we're quite new to the city and, and it's been hit fairly hard. So um, my partner was sick for a couple of weeks. And so we had mainly started our quarantine just trying to stay inside and take care of uh, one another as best we could. And now that she's doing better and um, we've been able to sometimes take walks, which is really nice. So, um, you know, holding steady, grateful that, that she got better, but certainly... Um, Lots to be worried about, lots of friends uh, struggling. Um, yeah, sorry, have- I, I, it's a very open-ended, sad answer, but... No, no, we hear things are very tough in, in New York. So our, we're, you know, in London, things are pretty tough as well. But yeah, thoughts are with you. Do you, do you find you manage to write in times like this? Is it tough to get writing done? Uh, I would say that I am meeting my basic obligations fairly consistently. Mm. And beyond that... I'm not, um, I I have not stunned myself by responding really, really well to this moment. Like I'm I'm meeting my pre-existing deadlines and I'm not doing much extra stuff is is mostly what I'm finding. Um, And that's just been something that has felt pretty crucial to accept that this is not going to be a time of um, extreme productivity or creativity for me. Yeah, so it's sort of the rational response to this time at the moment, isn't it? Actually, is is feeling like we're in a state of crisis is is the right response to things, you know? Um, Rajula, how how are things with you in New Zealand? We certainly envy your prime minister in the UK. She's uh, she is golden. She's so good, and I'm so glad that this is happening. If it was going to happen with Jacinda. Mm-hmm. Uh, in charge. I have to say that it's not been too bad, actually, because um, when we shut down, we had two cases of community transmission, which was just unprecedented. So 
it's it's been a big change in lifestyle because I've got a small apartment, so everybody's stuck in the same living room with workstations just um, going off. But uh, it's not been too bad, you know, I mean, because around us, things are not so bad. So it doesn't feel so bad. It just feels like um, staying at home a lot. But also where I live is beautiful. You know, if I walk 15 minutes, I get to the ocean and you can see South Island from here. And there's just a reserve and mountains all around. So um, it's quite nice to be able to go out and take a walk. But about the writing thing, I have been feeling that pressure. But I think that's because I'm at the later editing stages, so like line edits and just that sort of stage where you're super anxious about every mm-hmm. sentence and every word and feeling like you won't have this time again. So that's that's been, I mean, I know that I keep seeing articles in like, you know, headlines that say, uh, you know, don't put that pressure on yourself. I, I get it, but like, it's, it's also very hard to resist. Like, uh, when, when else am I going to be home before 8 p.m.? Uh, but yeah yeah totally it's it's very difficult even in this time of crisis I think to sort of shake off the capitalist mindset and the feeling that you know you've been given this time and you should be using it in some way productively and yeah I'm really I really find myself trying to resist that as well one of the silver linings though I guess is that we can have this conversation across three continents and it's perhaps a, a conversation we wouldn't wouldn't be having if we all had to be in the same room so I'm very grateful for that and um, I wonder if I can ask you to to just tell me a little bit about your books just to give a little bit of context to our conversation um, Danny do you want to start? Yeah I, I'd be happy to so uh, this is my third book and I have it with me there's a very wonderfully sort of hysterically upset person <laughs> whose face is crumbling on the front, which I really like. Um, uh, it's a collection of essays and what I call interludes, which are sometimes uh, reworked poetry, sometimes a uh, sort of bit of yelling, um, sometimes other sort of fantastical bits of not quite essays um, that uh, all have to do with um, various religious and literary and pop cultural figures that have been really important in my writing over the years, uh, kind of um, viewed in the context of my transition. And specifically, I think the sort of like 18 months that I spent kind of working out within myself, um, whether or not I was going to transition, how much, sorry, like use kind of goofy language, like how much was I going to transition? And um, whether or not that was something that I was kind of entitled to do or, or, or welcome or allowed to do. Um, and uh, that's what this book is, yeah. Can you tell me, can you tell us the story about where the title came from? Yes, I can, very much. Um, uh, that, that was something that came together before anything else in the book. It, it's a line from an old Simpsons episode uh, from a character called Lionel Hutz, who was voiced by the great late Phil Hartman, who is very near and dear to me. Um, and I don't know if you watch that show much, um, but Lionel Hutz was this sort of perpetually sweaty con man of a character who was always trying to like get a different grift going often uh, through his uh, job as a lawyer. But he was like, if, um, if that guy from the music man were always flop sweating and falling apart, that would sort of be his thing. So it's this wonderful moment of sort of like catastrophic male failure and he's trying to discredit another person who has photographic memory by saying what kind of tie do I have on 
Um, and the character names flawlessly, you know, like it's a, a Windsor knot club tie with red and white stripes. And he just incredibly ostentatiously like whips around and is like, oh, is that what you think? Well, if that's what you think, then let me tell you something that may shock and discredit you in that, but I'm not wearing a tie at all. Like, and he's just completely obviously ripped it off. It's such a like fragrant moment when it comes to something like evasiveness, failure, panicking, lying, losing all credibility. And so that was sort of the thing I knew before I knew anything else um, was that that was what I wanted in the book. I love that you're going to tell that story so many times for the rest of your life now. <laughs> you're kind of bound to it forever. I, anything that brings attention to Phil Hartman, you know, I'll take it. Absolutely. And how, how has it been for your book to come out at this point as well? Because it, it came out in February, did it? Yeah, yeah. I feel really grateful that I was able to do a couple of in-person events um, uh, before we had kind of realized the extent of, of how seriously we were going to have to take this. So I feel really lucky that I got to see some people in public in February. Mm -hmm. um, and um, beyond that, it feels very, just so outside of my control. Like there was no way I could have done anything differently to avoid this. So I think a combination of, I feel like I got kind of lucky and then also act of God, nothing I could have done either way. Mm -hmm. We'll have a good chat about it all, all today, this evening. Um, Regula, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Well, it's my, it's my debut novel, um, and it started as a bit of a fun project. And I used to call it uh, The Mistress for a very long time because I was writing this uh, very serious, very literary book uh, that was boring me to tears for my PhD. And I, was, I just couldn't get anywhere. Like, it, it had to be, like, this big thing. And I think somewhere I was trying to be. Uh, and now I realize very... Um, very male uh, in my or what I imagine to be this you know this grandmaster sort of middle-aged late middle-aged male author and um, because I felt like I don't know I felt like um, it was trite to write about uh, yourself as a first book as a woman it was there was something like that and, and nobody placed these restrictions on me these just came out of somewhere inside of me. And I was trying to write this very literary book that was just boring me to death. But then I started writing a sex scene between um, an erotic novelist who is very short, very weak, has a number of diseases and is madly in love with a prostitute who is raising her rights and wants to have nothing to do with him anymore. So um, that was the first scene. That's where the book opens, and it, it it just took a life of of its own. But it was very entertaining to write. I remember, so I constantly cheated on my very worthy book with my <laughs> mistress project on the side uh, till you know my my supervisor said. This one's a lot more fun. <laughs> why don't you just, why don't you just write this one? And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna. The other one's not, not going so well anyway. So, uh, yeah, so it's a it's a story about uh, the red light district in Calcutta. It's a uh, Calcutta is a city I lived in from about when I was 15 to 21, and so those were like really formative years. Um, and this is Asia's largest red light district so they have about 
Uh, reports vary, but I want to say something about 15,000 because the numbers go from like 10, 11 to 18. And that's the number of registered sex workers. So there are unregistered or um, floating people who come in there and work and then go away. So they're not necessarily in that census. Uh, there are families, children, people who live there, people, shopkeepers who run their shops there. So uh, it's a little city inside a city. And um, the story is about uh, a prostitute uh, who is trying to become an, es an escort. And I use the word prostitute because that that's, uh, there is a, a, a tussle between uh, being a sex worker and the rights to legitimize and form a union as a labor union and um, being uh, uh, a sex worker there. So there's, um, there's a tussle, there's a political naming problem there in the book. So I'm sorry, that's a very vague way of describing it, but, uh, uh, it's part, part escape story, part, um, rights to live where, uh, you live and to do the work that you do and, um, the politics that come into that. Brilliant. And I'm, I'm hoping we might talk a little bit about sort of language and, and sex work in, in our conversation. So, yeah, that's an interesting point to pick up on. Um, I think you've both got really um, fascinating alternative lives. Um, Rajula, you're, a, you're an academic. This has kind of emerged out of your academic work, but you're also a translator and a plain language consultant. Now, can you explain what a plain language consultant does <laughs> using plain language? <laughs> well, that's the hardest bit. Uh, I, oh, I help uh, mostly all organizations, which in my case happens to be mostly uh, New Zealand government agencies, write simply and for the audience. So we do a lot of work with insurance, with, um, you know, our, our, our ministries, our ministries of education, the children's welfare, so that the, the stuff that they do put out for the public is, or not for the public, is read by all. So it sort of comes from that social uh, engagement bit where you believe that people have a right to that information and that if you're not making it accessible in language, not only just, it's not just putting it on your website, but about making it accessible. Uh, if you're not doing that, then you're failing in your duty. So um, that's, that's where we come from. And there's a lot of um, traction, at least in New Zealand, people are fully on board and uh, people do believe that it should be, it should be accessible. So um, basically I'm a, I'm a writing coach uh, for adults about public policy. Mm -hmm. And have you, have you found that, um, that sort of fed into your book? your work on your book? Um, not really, because I wrote this book in 2015. I sold it in 2017 and it's 2020. And I'm still waiting for it to come out. So it's been a long journey and I only started working as a plain language consultant uh, last year. So uh, it hasn't fed in so much as uh, for this book. But um, it, what it does is that I get to still work with writing related things uh, in my, you know, in my waking life sort of, but as opposed to doing something completely, let's say, different. But it doesn't, 
uh, drain me from that creative energy, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. you know. So it just doesn't, it doesn't, um, it, it's adjacent and it fits quite well. So, uh, and it's quite a relief to sort of go into an insurance document when you're stuck in a, in a literary document. So it's very nice to just go, just sort of switch gears, the same tools, but just different things. I do want to say as well, if you've got if you've got questions or you want to exchange with each other as going along, please do hop in. Otherwise, I'll just dominate it with my my list of burning questions that I've got. But um, yes, just because we're not in the same room, please do do feel free to do that. Um, can you can you tell us a bit about your life as an agony columnist, Danny? Yeah, so I have been running the Dear Prudence advice column over at Slate now since I, God, I want to say late twenty sixteen, but it may have been late 2017. Very bad at remembering when things have happened in my life. So that's, um, we can look that up. Somebody can figure that out. Um, but um, it's been a column for quite a long time, since the late 90s, actually. So I'm, I'm the fourth or the fifth dear prudence to sort of step into that role. So one of the things that's quite nice is that it, it came along as an opportunity that was already very much, here's how the job works. Here's some of the tone of the Dear Prudence kind of um, uh, persona, but but then also here are ways in which you can bring your own ideas into bear. Um, and so it felt like walking into a very tightly regimented assembly line. Um, so it's unlike a lot of other jobs I've had as a writer, uh, because usually writing jobs don't come with a lot of like very specific instructions, like here's when you clock in, here's when you clock out, you're done. So I actually have always really appreciated that structure uh, and that aspect, but um, it's really a job that takes up about uh, three days out of my week. And then I try as much as I can when I'm not in those three days to not think about it. Um, So in a lot of ways, it feels very siloed off from my writing, but then I also kind of catch myself reusing or going back to particular phrases or particular points over and over again in both my work as Dear Prudence and in my writing elsewhere. So I think it's a little bit of a fantasy that I think like, oh, no, 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 I just do this three days a week for years and years, and it never affects anything else. I just have this big iron wall I can jam down. Um, I don't think that's quite as true as I would like it to be. Yeah, it's sort of, there's one of the, um, one of the parts of your book that really stuck with me was when you were talking about how you really, when you really started to listen to yourself and and pay attention to how you were feeling, that was sort of when you started to wonder about your transition. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think there's something really interesting about how when we take on listening roles for other people in our, in life, that can, that can sometimes reflect in us understanding ourselves better somehow. I don't know if that's... Oh, incredibly so. And incredibly so. I think part of the reason that I had sort of justified going back into therapy in late 2016 you know, 2017, whenever that was, was I was thinking, well, I'm always telling people, you know, if you have the time and if you can afford it, go to therapy, maybe I should do that again. It's been a few years. So it was very much also like that job informing personal choices, which later informed my writing because I went to therapy and almost immediately was like, I think I might be a boy. Can we talk about that? And almost nothing else for years and years. She was like, sure. Great. And I think, I think it, um, I think it's really, you know, one thing that struck me about your books, I mean, you are such different writers in a lot of ways, but you're both, I feel like you're both extremely compassionate writers and you both in your writing, 
it feels to me like you have a lot of compassion for people who might be the sort of antagonists within your text. So with, with Rajula's writing, you write from, you know, you write very compassionately from the perspective of, you know, the people who are, who are going to the sex workers to, you know, from the perspective of the police who perhaps haven't been supporting the sex workers very well. And, um, you know, I felt with, in your writing, Danny, you're, you're, you write very compassionately about people who perhaps haven't been supportive about, you know, as supportive as they might be about your transition. And yeah, I guess my question is really about the place of compassion in both of your writing and, and whether that, that feels like a, an important thing, particularly at, at this moment, which for various reasons doesn't feel, you know, a particularly compassionate time around a lot of questions about gender. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's a big question, but Danny, perhaps I can ask you. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think the word I might be inclined to use slightly more than compassion is patience in my writing. Um, because I don't think I'm always writing from a compassionate place, but because it's writing, because I'm able to take my time and to consider the other perspective, um, there is, I think, an inherent respect that comes with patience, with taking time to sit with someone else's thought or ideas or possible motivations or possible thoughts. Um, and, and so I, I certainly think that can be a compassionate act and it can be a useful act um, and, and, and one that I value. Um, but I also think that the act of um, imagination and patience can also lead me to decide to withhold compassion. And I think that's important as well. I think there are without maybe going as far as saying there are certain persons who I would never want to extend compassion towards. I don't think I would go so far as to say that, but there are certain positions that I would want to say, I would investigate this. I would give it the respect of listening to it describe itself. I would want to be patient as I considered it. And then I would want to make a decision about whether or not I thought it merited compassion. Mm -hmm. um, that feels like a, a useful choice, both as a writer and as a person. Thinking, I know, I know um, this is more for your book, but thinking too, especially about um, you know the importance of withholding uh, compassion from the police. Like as as a as an individual person, I think um, I would not want to extend compassion towards the job of policing. It might be something that I would give a lot of thought to or or, mm -hmm. or consideration to, but it's a. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, that feels distinct to me. I'm sorry, I, this is... Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right. I, I suppose what I'm identifying really is something, it is about that that quality of thought, actually. And perhaps you're right that compassion's not the right word, but it's, maybe it's more about complexity or granularity. It's about, you know, it just, it, it, it feels that, you know, there's something in the quality of both of these books that feels very antithetical to the way discourse around issues about gender and so on are conducted in the social media sphere and I think actually a lot of a lot of that is attention and maybe what I'm what I'm what I'm confusing for uh, compassion is a is a certain quality of attention that I really value in both of these oh books. and to be clear I don't think you were confusing anything I, I would just wanted to <laughs> add a little to that thought yeah, but I think yeah. compassion makes a ton of sense yeah yeah yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And that's, that's really very interesting, Daniel, because uh, I, I see that choice you make when you when you decide, well, it's not compassion. But, you know, I'm quite happy with the word compassion, but also the, the complexity and granular quality that you mean. Uh, but, you know, I, I wonder if if I would feel that the way that you feel, Danny, if I was 
doing more personal essays you know like I, I don't know I think the next novel that I'm gonna write is gonna be very close to my heart it's gonna it, 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 it is about um, physical violence against children in India it's a very big part of of how we grew up everybody was trashed regularly just like you know they were in the west 50 70 years ago so oh not 50 2020 right so yeah a bit a bit longer back than that but I mean um, and I, I and I don't know how I will deal with that so I, I don't know how I would do if it was more personal essays or or non-fiction or creative non-fiction in some kind uh with fiction however i mean i find i would find it very hard to write something uh or about somebody that i did not feel compassion for and like my um you know my police officer character he's he's i don't know if it's if it's compassion exactly but like i have I have, I mean, I'm looking into his life. I'm looking at what happens when he goes home. Like he's just got a marriage. Like he has a very young, he's, he's, none of, he's none of the good things that I would value politically or as a person. He's none of those things. But I, I just feel like if, if I didn't know who he was or um, see him when he's not a policeman or, or things like that, even if, even if those are bad things, then I wouldn't be able to write him with any sort of credibility. And, and there are characters in the book that I do absolutely nothing with. And they have only this, they, they sort of come in, in a shadow people and, um, you know, beat other people up, you know. Uh, but but that that's as far as I can see into them because I have no quality of compassion for them, if that makes sense. Like I, I have, no, I, 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 I cannot, um, uh, it, it's, I cannot understand them as people. So I'm not extended their quality of compassion, but that also means that I'm not really writing them. They're just this shadowy sort of thuggish figures in the background who are causing a certain amount of violence. So um, yeah, I, I guess that's, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to write about them otherwise. Regina, I, I wanted to ask you about there's sort of one of the aspects of your book is this um, this kind of movement that's started by the sex workers in the book. The, they use hashtag not one more and there's a bit of a parallel there with the Me Too movement. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the community you're writing about, about sex workers in India and, and how they have been impacted, if at all, by the Me Too movement because it it can often feel like something that has been quite sort of centered around, um, you know, quite privileged white feminism. And I wonder if it's something that you feel has, has impacted upon sex workers in India. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for the community because, you know, I have, I have absolutely zero rights to do so. But from what I have observed or studied or researched, I, I think I will, uh, that, that not one more was fictional. It was made up by me. And it obviously had tones of Me Too. But I think Me Too was more about, for me at least, uh, about speaking out uh about these incidents and I, and I have too there's things that's happened to me that I've 
talked about during the Me Too, but I think it was very much even in India, at least from what I saw, and that might be a limitation on my part and the people I associate with and my bubble, honestly, my very liberal privileged bubble, is um, that, that it was a chance for people like ourselves who are fairly privileged, fairly middle class educated to speak up. You know, uh, because um, uh, what I observe from uh, this the the movement and the struggles, the political struggles that the sex workers in India are, it's, it's still quite um, a, a lot rawer than that. You know, I mean, it's it, it's about the right to be legal. It's not legal in India. I mean, to begin with, you know, to be to be legal to um, have the right to be recognized as workers with, with the labor union and you know so um and and the right not to die very honestly so it, it's it's still very uh, i mean i don't think that we are we're at very i mean some parts of me to were to do with the nuance of what happens when you didn't really say yes or you know like uh, yes maybe you were not penetrated but you were shut up in a room and and you know like terrified by a bunch of men so that's uh but i guess where my book is happening or the, the place and the, the the community i'm talking of it's it's very much about um uh, about death and violence and and um a lot uh cruder threat I would say so that was not very that was not a very uh, good explanation but it's um, just trying to say that uh, I mean I don't think that Me Too affected uh, it that much as much as some other things have done like for example COVID or demonetization you know I mean it's just and uh, India went through demonetization when our prime minister decided that one currency was no longer valid. And this is an entirely cash economy. These these people, there's, I mean, most of these people are relying on cash. Uh, same with the COVID situation, you know, it's just, uh, it's just what's happening right now is that it's, it's another AIDS uh, level of, of crisis, except with AIDS, you could have protection but with COVID you have none and there is no healthcare system to fall back on so it's a very so I, I would say that those things would 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 have a, a much huger impact on the already very fragile and tenuous like relation like social structure where uh where my people are living you know that that sort of thing it's an extraordinary aspect of your book, actually, where you um, you talk about that uh, one, you know, a couple of banknotes suddenly being removed out of the currency in India, which was something I didn't know about at all. And then I went and Googled it and just imagining the impact on an economy that, you know, a lot of the economy, I suppose, is not formalized, is quite casual when suddenly two banknotes get taken out of circulation with basically no warning is a really, really extraordinary and fascinating part of the book. Um, yeah. 
especially people who who rely on that cash you know because a lot of these women they don't have um say an id card to go and uh, create a bank account so where are they going to keep the money you know i mean the 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 collective the, the women's collective it is a real thing i've changed the name so they they do run a a bank a, a cooperative bank for all sex workers over there it's run by the sex workers themselves but i mean you know before that happened it's 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 cash in mattresses and anybody could come and kill you or beat you up and take their cash and that it's just it's this huge impact of people who live in primarily a cash economy where they're working every single day to feed themselves so when you take cash away you know covid comes or uh, somebody decides to pull banknotes out of a currency it's just it has so many ramifications there it's just like mind boggles really yeah this is it with you know covid-19 it does feel like it it's sort of screwing the world in so many unimaginable ways you know i feel like every yeah. single day i'm sort of uh, you know and coming across a new way that people have been screwed by it and it's it's really devastating um Danny, I wanted to ask you um, about, you know, one of the really fascinating aspects of your book in relation to sort of feminism and the Me Too movement and so on is when you talk about how, you know, one, I suppose one of the things you talk about is how one of the struggles around your transition was the idea that you were perhaps turning your back on womanhood or, you know, stepping away from feminism. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah, I don't, I don't know that my work in this book ever uh, directly engages Me Too, but I certainly do spend some time in conversation with, with various, um, you know, there's so many different exciting flavors of transphobia. Um, and I think one of the ones that I was particularly in conversation with in the writing of this book was this kind of idea that transmasculine transition um, deprives a feminist community of a shared resource which is the transmasculine person's body um, and that other people have a right to that body in a way that the person who lives in it does not. Mm. Um, and that the kind of autonomy and freedom and self-determination that can come with transition can be um, framed as uh, uh, a shameful or a harmful act that somehow damages the idea of the feminist community. That can be leveraged against people who are considering like transmasculine transition in really painful ways. Um, and I think certainly for me, um, one of the things that I both had to wrestle with internally and also from some of the people in my life was this sort of idea that, you know, don't you agree that in fact, um, you are a steward of a public resource in your body and that you owe it to other people to do the following things with it and not to do these things with it um, in ways that were just um, unbelievably painful, shameful, um, devastating. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's, there's so many different ways that transphobia can take shape in, in people's lives and convince you that transition's the one thing you can't do, right? Like it's somehow both like, it's so desirable that like people must be protected from hearing about it because anyone who heard about it would be like, my God, I must do it. But it's simultaneously so bad that anyone who did it would immediately realize it doesn't actually work. It's a, it, it fails, it ruins something good. Um, so it can kind of get framed as both like this like forbidden contagion. It's like, oh, if you ever heard of transition, you'd want to do it because it's so alluring, like the castle in like 
or like the gingerbread house in Hansel and Gretel, but so dangerous that you would immediately die. Like if you went inside the gingerbread house in Hansel and Gretel. And so trying to kind of work through um, how do you think about desire and about the body in, in ways that don't operate under those sort of like shameful, normative, controlling principles is, is a real challenge. And, um, and I think it's also hard sometimes to separate from, you know, garden variety sexism and then the sometimes like weird responses people can develop in response to said sexism. So it can kind of be like, well, I sort of feel bad being a girl, but everyone says that's how you know you're a girl is that you feel bad. So maybe this just means I'm doubly a woman. Um, and that can wow. be right? Like what well, you're supposed to feel with, isn't it? You're supposed to feel bad when you look in the mirror. So yeah, I was I was so struck by that idea of um, you know the the sort of female body existing in in public ownership. And you wrote there's a, a part of the book that's really stuck with me is when you're you're talking about people saying I feel as if someone died, um, and that that really relating to ownership of people in some way, and also the term um, dead naming as well, which I'm afraid is something that I've used in the past and, um, you know, had my perspective really changed. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, quickly, quickly, I would just say, I, I don't use the language in my book of female body. Um, it's, that's not how I experience my, my own body. Um, I understand why, why sometimes people use it, but, but I, I personally do not. But um, uh, yeah, I think that question of, um, Golly, I'm sorry. I do this to myself sometimes. I go down a little track and then I forget what I was going to say. So it's just been completely wiped out of my brain and I hope you'll both bear with me. No, um, not at all. Would you mind awfully asking me the question again? I'll ask, yes, I'll ask you the question again. And, and sorry if it was the, uh, the wrong terminology to use. Oh, I've remembered it now. Thank you. Yes, about, about uh, yeah, dead naming. Yeah. So part of what I also do in the book is I kind of examine the phrase dead naming. I, I, I kind of address, I think, the fact that some people use the phrase dead naming, others don't. I find that I tend to more often use um, birth name or um, sometimes depending on the context, legal name. Uh, for me, my, my birth name is still my legal name. I filed to have it changed a while ago, but the government's very busy at present, so I'm, I'm not holding my breath waiting for the paper to get mailed back to me anytime soon. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I think certainly attempting to use someone's former name as a way of demonstrating to them, I don't recognize your right to make decisions about how you think about yourself. I believe that I have the right to make the final decision about what you're called, and I want you to know that is, is on its face, pretty obviously an act of control um, and, mm. and, and cruelty. But I also, you know, I also understand that there are um, people who don't associate former names with death and don't want to bring that language into it either. So I, I've also experienced people using an old name of mine out of habit um, and then correcting themselves. To me, that doesn't fall into the same category um, obviously, of course, there's ways that people can um, avoid change in ways that can be challenging. But I, I think there's different ways that people can um, approach the use of attempting to respect somebody else's autonomy, attempting to respect somebody else's change. So sometimes I call it dead naming. Mostly I tend to call it former name or birth mm -hmm. name. Um, I, I, I tend to think as a general principle, 
if you're going to take someone, if you're going to say who ultimately gets to decide what a person's name is, I think the answer kind of has to be the person themselves, because otherwise, you know, do you say their parents forever? Do you say anyone but, that they talk to gets to decide? Their teachers? I, of I think course, yeah. Say, yeah, I get to call my name, you get to pick yours. Yeah, I think it was it was particularly interesting to me the the sort of the idea of the terminology about death and the idea that some you know it feels like someone has died that that really that passage was so powerful that you know people choose to use the terminology about death is is challenging. Yeah, I certainly um, I, I I don't want to tell someone else here's how you should feel about something. I understand we don't choose our feelings. Um, but I do think we can choose the ways that we describe our feelings and we can choose carefully metaphorical language. Um, and I think finding a way to talk about sorrow, grief, poignancy, nostalgia, conflict um, are all possible without invoking the language of death. And I think particularly because um, no, nobody dies in a transition. It's, it's very much the work of life. It's the, the, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I do talk about religious stories and language in the book and, and in the Christian idea of the Garden of Eden, the very first work that human beings were given was the act of bestowing names upon living things. And so I think there's something really fundamental about the work of naming and the work of generation and of life and of aliveness, um, such that I think if somebody wants to discuss sadness or conflict, I want to leave room for that. Um, but I think saying it's like a death um, fundamentally misunderstands reality and, and I think is unnecessarily um, painful because, you know, then the transitioning person hears that and is like, well, sorry, I killed someone. Like, I, I don't know what to say to that. I have a new name, possibly a new haircut, but I'm not, I'm very much not dead. So sorry, I've, I've rambled on now. I'll, I'll stop. For a no, no, that's, that's brilliantly expressed. And yeah, it's just, it is so potent in your, in your book, that section. I, I loved it and felt very moved by it. Um, I feel like I should point out as well that these are both very funny books. You know, I don't want everyone to feel they're, they're, they're exclusively heavy. And that's one of the beautiful things as well that you both write so fantastically about, you know, sensitive subject matter with, with great humour. Um, do you think, do you think that humour kind of, ha well, I suppose the question is what role you think humour has to play in dealing with sensitive issues? Rajula, perhaps you could talk about it a little bit. Well, um, I just, I'm just gonna uh, just pick up on what Danny was just saying earlier. Um, you know, about the whole thing about naming, and I, I kind of get, I kind of get what you mean, just because it's also, you know, it's, it's some part of so many religious cultures where you reach a certain age and then you acquire a name because you're you're reborn certainly among hindu brahmins you, you don't get a new name but i know that muslim savakita where you get a name you know it's a naming ceremony you have a ceremony around being named even if it's your birth name so it, there's a whole ritual of of being born again or being alive again but it doesn't mean that you've been dead before you just 
you just uh, you're transitioning I mean you know everybody's transitioning even if they're not transitioning from their gender you're just transitioning into a different stage of your life and I was just thinking about it because there's there's um, a naming thing happening in my book as well because um, sex workers will often take on a different name or there's a huge um, um, a number of um, girls from Uzbekistan or um, that part of the world who work in many other parts but also in India and you know uh, the, the, those names are sometimes very hard for people to say so, so they come up with another name so uh, I mean I'm, I'm not equating I'm not equating anything I'm just saying that that's that's what came to my mind because there, there are um, so many transitions and there's so much about naming it's just been such a big part of our, our collective consciousness and uh, I mean in Christianity or in other world traditions the whole aspect of naming and becoming something like you you know even in in horror fiction like you give a thing a name and it comes alive you know like it stays with you forever and and that's so, so very true so I was just I'm just like I don't know those are just my thoughts when I heard you heard you talking uh, about humor I'm a huge Gary Pratchett fan so I obviously worship at the altar of, of, of humor and using humor to tell uh, difficult things but I, I do not I never um, I never suspected that I had I had the ability to do it. I always enjoyed it, but I never thought I had the ability. So it was when the first feedback of my of my um you know the first draft of the novel came that people mentioned it was funny, and I was I was very stoked because I didn't think I was a particularly funny person. I mean, nobody's ever told me that I'm a funny person, so I was quite happy about that. But I felt very strongly, I think, in the very um, beginning of the book that uh, I didn't want to write a doom and gloom story because it is not a doom and gloom story. You know, it's just I think I think um, people outside of of the um, sex work life have an expectation when they're not very familiar with with the actual people and their lives that it is all doom and gloom and and sadness which is you know i mean yes it's a very hard life in especially in 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 places where it's not uh necess- always not al- always a matter of choice i want to say that it's not always a matter of choice but sometimes it is a matter of choice but of circumstance where where, where the just the state machinery and and the cultural machinery is very much against you and stuff like that um yes it is very hard but also also it's just life you know it's just life there's there's they have families they have friendships it's like a, a, a large number of females living together in in a house you form friendships you know you you um you talk about money you fight over things you you scold your children it's life as usual and and it's it's funny as well you know i mean it's not it's not necessary just by uh, i think some and, and somewhere I was working against the idea that because uh, because circumstances are against somebody that their lives therefore must be unbearably sad. I just don't think that that's true, and um, it, it just felt very important to talk about life as is, which includes laughter. You can't have a story. You can't. You can't authentically tell somebody's story that has 
zero element of joy or laughter. I mean, that's just a very sad way of writing it, I think. Danny? I don't know that I have much to add there. I think I'm very much <laughs> of the same mind. Yeah, that was fabulous. Do you think any topics are off limits for humor? Um, I, I suppose I would say that there are plenty of ways in which humor um, uh, is, it can't be the final word in a discussion. So I, I don't know that I would say there are the following topics where humor can never be interestingly deployed in, in the service of the discussion. But I, I think there's also lots of ways in which humor can be um, protective uh, or um, avoidant um, or, or as a way of rushing through ambiguity or uncertainty or um, trying to avoid uh, discomfort. So I, I think that there are plenty of conversations where humor is employed either offensively or defensively in order to avoid the work that only other kinds of speech can do. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that there's a topic that's totally off limits, but certainly I can think of a few where um, there's only a handful of jokes you can get through, and then once you've gotten through them, the conversation's not over. Um, so you do have to think of something else. Weirdly, I've been re-watching uh, with my partner a couple of um, some of my old favorite Ernst Lubitsch films. I don't know if either of you are familiar with his work. He did probably, if you're familiar with any of his work, it would be The Shop Around the Corner, which was later the inspiration for You've Got Mail. Um, but he, he was his films were referred to as having something called the Lubitsch touch, which I love. I just love as an expression, but it, was, it wasn't a phrase that he coined. And so it was a little bit difficult to find, but people talked about um, this kind of marriage of um, sophistication, humor uh, with, with poignancy, like in these lovely kind of sparkling, almost screwball, but, but a little bit slowed down um, conversations between like very like sexually charged adults. Um, there would always be this sense of like loss or uh, resignation to a potential future loss. And um, that I think is the kind of humor that I often like the most or respond to the most because it's not humor that's attempting to shut down other things. It's humor that allows for the expression of multiple emotional perspectives at the same time. So it's like humor as sophistication, which I like quite a lot. So. Well, you said humor can't be the last word, but I'm looking at my watch and it looks like we, I've got a million more questions I want to ask you both, but I think we, we had better come wrap it up and come, come to the end. Um, I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to hear your readings, um, but I was going to ask you one last question, which is, um, as you're both writers, you're probably quite used to spending lots of time locked away on your own. And I wondered if you could both share a top tip for surviving the lockdown. Regula, can I ask you first? Sure. I think um, well, at this moment, I'm just going to talk about what's the, the top of my mind is to have a bit of um, internet detox, really, because I think we're spending, uh, I'm used to spending a lot of time on my own, but I think that this is, there's, there's, there's this added pressure, I think, to be connected because you're working from home, because your anxiety scrolling and all of those things and um, just a picture that's emerging out of most of the world including the politics of the moment is just so 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 heartbreaking in so many ways it's just uh, I've 
I've found that it, it, it's adding an extra layer of exhaustion to on top of everything else. Just the, I think the profound sadness of how, uh, how we are as a species dealing with it in so many places. So, um, I would say having very probably making it a, a, a priority to have some time when you're not doing something that's, technologically connecting you to the world. And, and now that I'm saying this while you're probably watching this on YouTube, but uh, read a book, like don't stare at the screen, give yourself that time when you're, you don't have your headphones on or something. It's, I think that, that there improves, that will have a significant improvement in, in our mental health. And it's been working for me and I have fragile mental health at best. So I can recommend it. So switch off after finishing watching your bookbound talks. That's a, that's a <laughs> yes. Danny, do you have a quick tip? Gosh, you know, it's hard because so many people are in such different um, positions. So, you know, what might work for somebody who has a spare room uh, might not work for somebody else who's like an essential worker, somebody else who's, uh, you know, with five kids. So acknowledging that I can't give any piece of advice that's going to be useful to even most people, I would say if one of the problems you have right now is more time on your hands than you know how to fill um, and if you're able to safely leave the house um, consider looking to see if there are any mutual aid groups that are forming or have already formed in your city um, if part of the problem is just a real sense of I can't motivate myself you might find that it's easier when you can do some even behind the scenes volunteer work that helps people with training or dispatch just anything that makes you feel like, oh, I did something useful today um, can sometimes be more motivating than should I start writing a novel? So if that's your situation, that might be helpful. That is totally fantastic advice. Thank you so much. That brings this um, conversation um, to an end. Thank you so much, Daniel and Regila, and to everyone at home for joining Bookbound 2020. That was Amber Massey-Blomfield there ending the conversation between Rajula Das and Daniel Mallory Ortberg. They finished with some top tips there. Whether you're in a pandemic or not, I'm pretty sure there'll be handy things to do. I think I'm going to take these headphones out very soon and look at my nearest tree. I really like this tree. I wish you could see it. It's a lovely tree. Now, Rajula mentioned mental health there, which is a great opportunity for us to just flag again. We've spoken about this before on the podcast, that Bookbound is raising funds in aid of the UK-based mental health charity Mind. Please Google Just Giving, Bookbound, and donate whatever you can spare, if you fancy it, to help support and empower people going through mental health problems. Next time on the Bookbound podcast, we have the authors Claire Pooley and CJ Flood speaking together about life after alcohol and how they've written through the transition into sobriety. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, that would be just great for us to know. Please subscribe and rate us. Review us wherever you get your podcast from so we know just what you think. The Bookbound podcast team is me, that's Georgie Codd, working with Claire Reed, Felicity Quick and Beatrice Bazell. Our theme tune is Wonder Under by the Glad Rags, 
which I am still addicted to. I sing along every time. It was donated to us as part of the Free Music Archive. So thank you very much to them. And thank you for listening. Have a lovely, lovely day. I want you to be.